All right, while everybody's finding their seat, just a couple of reminders this Friday, I mean this coming Sunday, not only is Super Bowl Sunday, but we're also having our annual congregational meeting that will take place immediately following the morning worship service. Then um, uh, the other major uh, announcement has to do with the upcoming pastors conference, uh, the Chafer uh, Seminary Pastors Conference that starts uh, March 13th and goes through March 15th. If you're going to be here at any time, we're asking please register so we have an idea of how to, um, you know, organize all the logistics. Have make sure we have enough cookies for everybody, and sandwiches and barbecue and everything else that's part of the uh, uh, part of the conference. So the focus of the conference this year is on understanding the inerrancy of Scripture as well as understanding. Uh, in the important issues in hermeneutics, because what is happening this happens almost every generation. There's another battle for the Bible. Is the Bible the Word of God? How accurate is the Bible? Uh, is the Bible or was the Bible inerrant in the original manuscripts? How are we to interpret it? Uh, things of that nature, because if we do not have the correct or do not follow the correct principles of of interpretation, then you can easily reshape what the Bible says. Um, and even if you affirm inerrancy on the one hand, you're practically taking it away with the way you interpret the Scripture. So uh, two, two keynote speakers are going to be Dr. David Farnell, who has been uh, teaching for about 20 years at the Master Seminary, he has his Ph.D. in New Testament Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary, and uh, Dr. Wayne House, who has many degrees and has probably uh, written close to 50 or 60 books. He is a writing machine, and uh, I've been friends with Wayne for about 30, almost 30 years now, and um, he's the one who first taught me how to lead a tour group through Israel. So Wayne and I have uh, had a good friendship for many years. So there's going to be a great conference. Andy Woods is also presenting a paper, as is Mark Musser, and uh, a couple of other men, David Roseland, a really important paper. Uh, the title will sound boring, so will Mark Musser's, but they're very important in terms of content uh, for people to understand. So that's the announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that even though we are saved by grace and that sin is completely paid for by Christ on the cross, that secures our eternal fellowship. But we often break fellowship just as a child will break fellowship with his parents when he's disobedient. We do the same thing, and the way to recover is to confess sin, which doesn't mean to apologize to God or to ask forgiveness. It means simply to admit or acknowledge guilt, and we're told God instantly forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening. We're thankful that in our prayer groups we were able to bring before your throne of grace uh, many situations, circumstances, people. We have folks in the congregation who have serious life-threatening health problems, others who are at home, homebound due to uh, various other health problems, and we pray for them, for their caregivers, for their families, for their testimony, and we pray that you would continue to uh, provide care for them, and we as a congregation to pay attention to those who are homebound, that we might call, visit, uh, take some time to uh, send them a note, things of that nature, that we might be an encouragement to them. Father, we pray too for us as a congregation that we might be mindful of our position to be faithful witnesses of your grace, of your love, and that we might faithfully uh, adhere to your word, teaching it, understanding it, teaching it, and applying it in our lives. Now, as we study tonight, we pray you'd help us to understand what we're studying and that it might shape uh, many aspects of our thinking, that it might shape the way we pray, that it might shape the way we uh, apply your word and trust your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Psalm 52, so open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter uh, Psalm chapter 52. We've been, over the last month to six weeks, in several of the Psalms. And this particular Psalm is a Psalm that is going to, it's a short Psalm, it's nine verses. It's a Psalm that is going to connect to several things that we have studied in the past several weeks. One thing we've studied in uh, relation to the previous psalm, uh, which we looked at uh, in Psalm, uh, both in Psalm 59 and Psalm 56, we looked at the fact that we are living in a hostile environment as, as believers living in the devil's world. That is one area of hostile environment. There are other areas where we may have be in hostile environment. We may be in a hostile environment in terms of our own family. We may be in a hostile environment as Christians in the workplace. We may not have other believers there, and there may be problems because of uh, our own uh, testimony. Not that we should make that an issue at work, but people find out that, oh, they're, they go to church, they're Christian, and then they make a lot of assumptions about what that means that aren't necessarily true. Uh, we have other circumstances and circles of people we involve with that may be hostile. So uh, that's touched on in this psalm as well. We've also looked at the doctrine of the sins of the tongue, uh, problems, uh, the sins such as uh, slander, maligning, gossip, ridicule, uh, hostility that's expressed. Uh, through the through the tongue, through verbal sins, uh, that's touched on in this psalm as well, very very much so. So this fits a lot with what we studied just last Thursday night in the in First Peter, and I believe that was First Peter lesson eighty one, and that's the uh, lesson that deals with the sins of the tongue. So if you're listening to this series and you're not listening alongside the other series that I'm teaching right now, you might want to check out that particular psalm, I mean, that particular lesson as background to what we're looking at this evening. Another theme that is really important in all of the all of the psalms is trusting in the sufficiency of God's grace. 
trusting in God to be our resource. He is our strength. He's the one who gives us security. He's the one who is our, uh, the scripture uses various different uh, descriptive metaphors. He's our high tower. We take refuge in him. He is our rock. Uh, he is he is immovable. Nothing is greater than God's power. That's all. That's the rock is not like a small stone. That is like a huge, enormous uh, escarpment in whom we take refuge, and He will not be moved. There are numerous other. Uh, emphases in the scripture, some of which we'll look at uh, tonight. And there are two ways of looking at the problems of life. One is to trust in God's power, the sufficiency of his grace, and that he will sustain us. And the other is to seek uh, solace in various details of life. Some people try to solve the problems of life with drugs. Some people try to solve the problems of life with with alcohol. Some people try to solve the problems of life by being successful or uh, making a lot of money and uh, others through a lot of pleasure. But the scripture says that we are not to trust in the details of life, anything within the created order, because nothing finite can really give us happiness. Nothing finite can give us stability. Nothing finite can solve the problems in our life. Only someone who is greater than we are, someone who is all-knowing, who knows every detail about our circumstances, and someone who is all-powerful can provide uh, those solutions. And that's really a major theme in this particular psalm, Psalm 52. What we learn from this is that God alone can truly sustain us and ultimately deliver us from hostile people, hostile forces, difficult circumstances, uh, loss of a loved one. Whatever the circumstance is, God is the only one who can truly sustain us. And now as we get into this particular psalm, just in terms of the structure of the psalms, this is the beginning of, of several psalms that go through at least into the early part of the 60s, uh, Psalm 61, Psalm 62. Uh, this is a set of psalms that all seem to deal with a uh, various themes related to how uh, believers are to handle circumstances where they are living in the midst of, of uh, animosity, hostility. They're persecuted by people. They're opposed by evil people, and these evil people really want to destroy them. And several of these, as we're studying, have to do with, with David. And David is uh, the same David who killed Goliath. He's the David who is rewarded by King Saul by giving him his daughter to marry him. And yet the next scene we see is that Saul is trying to kill David, his son-in-law, several times. He has tried to spear him. He has set up circumstances that if David... Uh, followed through that he would be killed. Uh, he's out to kill him. So David writes how God protects him in the midst of those particular uh, circumstances and situations. And so th this fits within this particular section. It's also interesting that we're coming out of, if you were re reading through the Psalms chronologically, and I believe that God in his, in his sovereignty and in his uh, providential care 
arranged for the Psalms to be arranged in this manner. It's not just haphazard. They were written at different times in different places, but they're not organized by author. They're not organized by the time in which they were written. They're not organized by topic, except in some circumstances. Uh, so it seems that God was working that they would these these themes would become apparent. And what we have in Psalm 51 is a confessional psalm that was written by David after his sin with Bathsheba and the sin of having her husband murdered so that the fact that he had made her pregnant would not be known. And so he cries out to God to have mercy upon him, and he cries out to God to forgive him. And then we move from reading a psalm like that where David has succumbed to evil to a psalm where he is contrasting himself with an evil man. And, of course, the psalm in Psalm 52 was written many, many years prior to Psalm 51. But it's interesting how we have these these things, uh, or, these psalms organized. Now, we're in a study of First and Second Samuel. And what just a little review so you see where we are and where we're going. When we were in 1 Samuel 19.11, and David is married to Michal, who is Saul, who is Saul's daughter, and he is in the house with her in their private home, and yet Saul has sent a hit team of assassins to murder David. And he knows they're outside lying in wait, and he wrote uh, Psalm 59 to express his lament or his cry to God to deliver him in the midst of that uh, situation as they were setting up an ambush. And he talks about their sins of the tongue, that they uh, verbally uh, assassinated his character. They slandered him. Their words, uh, we use the same kind of an imagery here, the words cut like a sharp sword or sharp knife and uh, and sliced him. And that was, we covered that psalm in lessons 70 through 71 in this Samuel series. The next psalm that we talked about, I skipped one inadvertently. Uh, we talked about Psalm 56, which was covered in Lessons 80 to 81. Uh, we just finished that. This was a, also a lament psalm uh, written about David's trouble when he was captured in Gath. We should have looked at that second, but I looked at it uh, I looked at it third, but that was supposed to be taken as second. The third one that we looked at, which uh, the third one we looked at, which should have been taken third, was Psalm 34. After David escaped from Saul, and David went to, David was trying to find some place where he could hide, decided the only place he could go to hide was in, uh, was in Gath, which was the hometown of Goliath. It's the Philistines. He's going to hide out uh, among the enemy. Those were the two Psalms. Psalm 56, he wrote after they captured him. So it's the lament Psalm. And then he wrote Psalm 34 uh, after that to express his praise to God. It's both descriptive and declarative praise uh, to God and God delivering him from, uh, from Achish. And then uh, fourth, we now come to, um, as we went through Psalm, excuse me, Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, 9 through 23, uh, we discovered that this, this one uh, member of Saul's staff named Doeg the Edomite happened to be in a place called Nob, which was the dwelling place of the priests. And he saw David come there to get some food, and he saw the 
Ahimelech the priest uh, give David food. And so he goes back and he tattles on Ahimelech because he wants to, to cause chaos in, in Israel. Uh, he wants to create a problem so that David gets blamed for the slaughter of the priests. And so he tells Saul about this. And this is the situation where uh, we find the background of Psalm 52. And we read about this in, uh, in, Psalm, in 1 Samuel 22. But before we go there, I wanted to back up to the title slide. The end result of this psalm, which is an unusual psalm, and I'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, the end result that we see in the last several verses is that it's a focus on hope. It's a focus on the mercy of God. It is a focus on waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is always related to our hope, our expectation of deliverance from God, and ultimately our inheritance in heaven. And so this really drives this psalm. It's interesting. When you get to the end, you understand why David is saying the things he's doing, he, he's saying, and what, what the structure is. So uh, in 1 Samuel twenty-two eighteen, we read, And the king, that Saul, said to Doeg, the, and he's called Doeg the Edomite. So he is from Edom. And what's interesting is that there's a play on words here because the word for Edom means red, and David is also called ruddy, and he have ruddy complexion, and it's a play on words, and it's as if the author wants to bring out this contrast between David and Doeg uh, to help us to understand this, this conflict, same conflict. He's an extension of Saul. So the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So after Doeg reported that the priests had had uh, aided David, uh, the king has asked for some others to volunteer to go kill all the priests, and they refused because they were not going to kill uh, the Lord's anointed in terms of the priests. So he ordered Doeg to do it, who's an Edomite, and he was willing to do that. So uh, Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. A linen ephod was a garment that the priest would wear that was a sign of his office as a Levitical priest. Verse 19, we read also Nob. This is a city, a uh, small community, just to probably about three miles or so from uh, from the Temple Mount, what we now call the Temple Mount. It was on what is now called Mount Scopus, where Hebrew University is located. Um, and that was where the priests lived. And he said, it's, the text says that he struck the city of the priests with the edge of the sword, and he killed both men and women, children, nursing infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. So the 80, 85 men plus these women, children, and nursing infants were killed. Now, I'm putting a map up here that we've looked at as we go through these psalms. Nob is located right here. This is you, you can get a sense of the scale when you realize that this is only a short distance. It's only about uh, two or three miles at most uh, from, from uh, Jerusalem to Nob. And David f- fled from Gibeah, where Saul was. He fled there to get some bread from the priests some food for himself and his men. Then he fled to Gath, 
where he was captured, then he faked insanity because that was believed to be something brought on by the gods and nobody would mess with you if you were insane because if they did something negative to you, then the gods would punish you. So David is very wise. But we learned as we studied our way through uh, Psalm 59 that David was David did this as a result of, uh, excuse me, not Psalm 59, but Psalm uh, uh, Psalm 34, that David was praying to God. God gave him wisdom in that situation to handle the problem. That's that kind of prayer is articulated in James chapter uh, chapter one verse five. That if anyone lacks wisdom, that's not academic intelligence. That's skill for living, for handling problems. That's the context of James one. That if you don't know how to deal with problems and situations in life then pray to God that he will give you wisdom from his word to be able to properly handle these circumstances uh, according to scripture. So David is in prayer. He's been captured. He fakes uh, insanity. They let him go, and he goes to the cave of Adullam. Uh, The cave of Adullam is in 1 Samuel chapter 22. That's where he is hiding out. And his family comes to him and others who have been uh, kicked off of their property by Saul. It's a very hostile, tyrannical type of uh, reign. And so they have now become outcasts and they're aligning themselves with, with David. And so they go to the cave of Adullam. And then as we see and follow the lines, uh, David decides it's better to get further away from Saul, so he makes a decision to take them over to the neighboring kingdom, to to Moab, and he goes over there. Now, in light of a lot of the stuff that's going on in current news, this doesn't make David uh, an illegal refugee, okay? Was, there's some important things to learn about how the Bible teaches this. He's a, he is or would be classified today as a political refugee because he is living in his home country, but he has been uh, he is being targeted by the government. So he is seeking political asylum by going to the neighboring kingdom. But when you look in First Samuel 22, what he did is he went to the king. He goes to the government and does it legally according to the standards of the kingdom and enters into a contract with the king of Moab to protect his parents. So he's going to leave his family, his parents there, and then uh, um, Gad, who is a prophet, uh, comes to him and warns him not to stay in Moab because Moab was... uh, many cases it was hostile territory, warned him not to stay there. So David returned to Judah back going around the southern part of the Dead Sea back into the Negev and up into the southern part of the hill country of Judah to this area called the Forest of Hereth. And it is while he is at the cave of Adullam, he writes uh, one psalm, which we'll look at after we finish uh, Psalm 52, and it may be that he wrote Psalm 52 uh, at the cave of Adullam after he had uh, escaped escaped from Gath, uh, because that would be uh, probably the time that he learned about the uh, killing of the priests at uh, at Nob. And it's at this time that Saul is reported 
that, that Doeg reports the presence of David down in the south. And then we learn from 1 Samuel 22, 6. Let me just read it to you. We get the background here. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now there in the forest of Hereth. Now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree. So here's Gibeah up here. He's under a tamarisk tree where he is getting shade and in the, in the heat of the day, it's cool, under a tamarisk tree in Ramah, which is just north of, it's right at the edge of the map there, just north of Gibeah. This was the hometown of, of Samuel. Uh, he's staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with a spear in his hand and all his servants around him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse, that's David, uh, give every one of you fields and vineyards. In other words, is David going to be a king and give you a bunch of handouts and, and uh, give you uh, a lot of awards for uh, following him? And the implication is no, he's not going to award you at all because you are my, on my side. If David becomes king, he'll punish you. That's the implication from what Saul is saying. Then he goes on and says, all of you have conspired against me. He's paranoid, and he's blaming all of his uh, th- those who were his closest counselors. This is like his cabinet that's uh, of men that are around him. He says, all of you have conspired against me. There's no one who reveals to me that my son, that's Jonathan, has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. We studied that. And there's not one of you who's sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait this day. So he's blaming everybody for his problems, and that's typical of someone who is not responsible. They're losing it, they're out of control, and they blame everybody else for their problems rather than taking ownership and responsibility for the circumstances they've created. Whenever a person or a believer gets out of fellowship, and begins to be disobedient to the Lord and living, making bad decisions, then there are going to be bad consequences. And the result of those bad consequences is often just a lot of self-induced misery. We make bad decisions and we reap the negative consequences for that. And many people are miserable in life not because uh, of any other reason, not because somebody's out to get him, but because they have made bad decisions over the course of their life. And that's what's happened to David. So he's, I mean, to Saul. So he's blaming everybody else. Then in verse 9, we read, <clears throat> after everybody around him has said, we're not going to kill the priest. Then Doeg the Edomite comes up, and he he announces that, well, I saw David seeking seeking. Uh, uh, aid from the priests at Nob, and uh, so so they're out to get you also. That's what he's doing. He's setting them up. Uh, Ahimelech did not perform any act of rebellion against Saul, but that's how Doeg is painting it. And we always have to be careful about that because there's always those enemies of a society that are trying to pass the big lie, the fake news. And that's what this is. It's fake news that Ahimelech was trying to uh, support David in a rebellion against Saul. David wasn't in rebellion, and neither was Ahimelech. And but that's that's the thrust of what he's trying to say. And he said he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him permission, gave him a sword, uh, the sword of uh, of Goliath, uh, to uh, and to strengthen him. So th- that's the context, and. 
what we see this at the beginning of the Psalms. See, about 12 of these Psalms have specific historical notations. So we understand that the, the song, the hymn, is written in light of a specific situation that happened in the life of David, and it's a response to that. And so when we understand that, it would help us to be knowledgeable about what's going on in this particular hymn. The same thing's true about the hymns that we sing in church. There's a history behind a lot of them, not necessarily all of them, but there are. there's a history behind a lot of them, and when we understand that, then those words make sense and we can understand and connect with the thoughts of, of the writer. So this is the kind of situation we see this here. This is a contemplation. The term, word there is maskil. I'll talk about that in a minute. It's a contemplation of David. When Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. See, he's blaming Ahimelech for David escaping. So this sets that that situation here, and now David is hiding out. Um, well, at the time he heard this, he, it's at the cave of Adullam, but then he went over to Moab and then, then came back. And so Saul's response is, is revealed in, in um, verses uh, 6 uh, through 10. Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, then he... Uh, is going to send a group, uh, and he and uh, and he's going to send Doeg. And so in verse nine we read, then he answered, then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and he tells him about Ahimelech, and uh, I've already read through that. Now just background: here's Ahimelech. These are the high priests of Israel from Eli. The tenth high priest of Israel was uh, Abiathar. Uh, Eli, we read about at the beginning of First Samuel. Eli is the uh, was the extremely fat uh, uh, high priest who let his sons uh, Phinehas and Hophni run wild. Uh, after Eli died, when he heard the bad news that the Ark of God had been captured at the Battle of Aphek, uh, he fell over and died. He was in his 90s. Then his son uh, Phinehas, or Pinchas, became the high priest. Uh, his son Ahitub, uh, followed him as the high priest, and then his son Ahimelech followed him as high priest. Ahimelech is the one who's high priest at this situation, but he's going to be killed by Saul, and his son Abiathar is going to survive, and he's the one who's going to escape and go to David. Uh, but he's not going to stay high priest all of his life. He's the only high priest in the history of Israel that was deposed, uh, Solomon kicked him out because when David died, or was about to die, David had two sons, Adonijah and Solomon. Adonijah had pretensions to the throne, but David, through the guidance of God, said that the heir would be Solomon. Well, uh, uh, Abiathar sided with Adonijah. So when Solomon became king, he deposed Solomon, kicked him, I mean, uh, uh uh, Abiathar kicked him out of the high priesthood, and then the priesthood went to the house of Itamar. Itamar was another son of Aaron. And so the line of descent shifted, and it would go down through the line of Zadok. Zadok would become the high priest at the time of David, and it's his descendants who are going to serve in the temple in the millennial kingdom in the, in the future. 
So that just sort of puts that in a little bit of perspective for you because that gets kind of confusing uh, at times. Now, when we talk about this historical situation, you'll read, and there, there really aren't a lot of good commentaries on the Psalms. And a lot of them are written by those who have a certain amount of, uh, let's say, skepticism about the truth of these historical notations. And it's amazing how many seem to doubt the veracity of this inscription. However, uh, Hingstenberg, who was a Jewish believer, Jewish Christian, uh, Messianic Jew in the mid-19th century, uh, noted in his study of the Psalms that all of these Psalms, from Psalm 52 to Psalm 64, stood in close relationship to one another in terms of their main themes of trusting in God. Also, I spent some time today reading through a lot of material I have on the Psalms in the uh, sort of an anthology of what was taught by the Jewish uh, rabbis and the Jewish sages uh, from the Mishnah, the Talmud, um, various other writings, and they are consistent in their belief that David authored this psalm, that this is the historical situation, that David was a historical figure, Doeg was a historical figure, and so they they believe that uh, that this is uh, is completely accurate. Where there are these liberal Protestants who uh, who want to cast doubt on that. In fact, in rabbinic literature, Doeg really becomes a type or a representation of those who have opposed Israel in history, those who've opposed the Jews in history and God in history. And that's sort of how this is used. We have David, who's the one writing, and he's talking about Doeg, but Doeg really also represents the wicked man, the evil man, the person who's rejected God and who's trying to uh, make it on his own and trust in his own wealth and power, in order to have success. And that's what went on with, with Doeg. He is trying to curry favor with Saul. He was uh, the chief of his, of his shepherds, which indicates that he would have been within that inner circle, uh, the council uh, that surrounded Saul and gave him advice. And so he's trying to g- gain more favor and more power uh, in the court of Saul. Uh, it's interesting Probably not true, but I ran across an interesting uh, story in rabbinical uh, view is they believe, many of them believe, that Doeg the Edomite was actually is the one referred to as an Amalekite at the end of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, uh, at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is, is defeated at the uh, Battle of Gilboa. He knows he's going to be overrun by the Philistines, so he fell on his sword. And then we're told in the first chapter of Second Samuel that this Amalekite came to David thinking he would curry favor with David. I killed your enemy, so now I'm going to get a big reward. And he told David that he'd killed Saul. And David said, if you murdered the Lord's anointed, then uh, I'm going to execute you and executed him. Uh, and so in, I don't know how they got that other than they used Doeg to represent the enemies of Israel. And in, in rabbinical thought, uh, any nation, any people who were anti-Semitic and opposed the Jews were referred to as Amalek. They referred to the Germans as Amalek. They referred to the Russians as Amalek. They referred to the uh, any people group that is opposed to them are anti-Semitic, they refer to as Amalek. So probably those two images came together uh, somewhere in rabbinical thought. 
But it's my view and the view of most who believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, that the inscriptions are truthful, they're part of the original inspired text, and that any of these attempts that uh, seek to get around that uh, ultimately end up in nothing more than a lot of, uh, lot of conjecture. As we look at, at Doeg, Doeg's sin is one of, uh, that, that is expressed through treacherous slander. So there's an emphasis on the tongue and sins of the tongue in this psalm. Look at verse 2. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. So we see this repetition of these the sins of the tongue. You love all the devouring words and then just calls him. You're just a deceitful tongue. You're just a liar. You, that you represent all liars. And so that is the depiction that, that Doeg has, has slandered the priest. He slandered David. And he is the epitome of the sinner who causes his own destruction, brings misery into his own life uh, because of his evil tongue, the Lashon Ra'ah, the evil tongue, the tongue of evil in Hebrew. Uh, also among many of the scholars, the purpose of the, the psalm is also debated, and it's because it's unusual. Uh, psalm 52 isn't a prayer for deliverance. Those kinds of psalms, remember we talked about this, those are called lament psalms because the author is lamenting his situation, crying out to God for deliverance. There's other psalms that are called thanksgiving psalms because the whole focus is on giving thanks to God for deliverance. Other psalms are called declarative uh, praise psalms, and they have an instructional orientation, and even others are called descriptive praise psalms because they're describing how God saved us. Now, all of these psalms are important because they teach us things about how to pray to God. Read through the psalms prayerfully. Think about how the writer structured his prayer to God. These are powerful prayers, and also how he structured his praise to God. Praising God isn't saying, oh, praise God. It's not uh, trivial. It, it, a lot of thought goes into the structure uh, of these particular psalms. So uh, it doesn't fit any of those, though. It's not a lament psalm. It's not an individual or communal lament. It's not a thanksgiving psalm. It's not a descriptive praise psalm or a declarative praise psalm. But the best approach is to think of it as prophetic judgment. That's what Marvin Tate says. I believe he taught at Moody Bible Institute at one time, wrote the commentary in the scholarly commentary series, the word biblical commentary. And he said the best approach, however, is to read the psalm in terms of the language of prophetic judgment. David is writing a uh, functioning like a prophet and uh, stating God's judgment upon Doeg as he represents those who are opposed to God, trusting in themselves rather than God. So this is what Marvin Tate says. A hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago now, a hundred and twenty or thirty years ago, Stuart Perrone in a commentary on Psalms uh, wrote, this psalm is not a prayer or a complaint addressed to God against the oppression of the wicked. It is a stern upbraiding addressed to the man who, 
unscrupulous in the exercise of his power and proud of his wealth, finds his delight in all the arts of the practice liar. It is a lofty challenge, a defiance. So he he states this very clearly that this distinguishes it. It is an announcement of judgment on on the wicked. Now, the other thing we learned from this, and, and actually I didn't read any uh, Christian commentaries who brought this point out, but it is assumed and understood in the Jewish and rabbinical commentaries that this is a contemplation, a mesquil, and that the significance of that is a type of psalm that was composed with special intellectual effort to teach an essential lesson. So it's a psalm that is given in order to instruct others. Now, now we read another psalm that was similar to that uh, when we looked at Psalm, I believe it was Psalm 79. And that was the, um, excuse me, Psalm, um, it was Psalm 34, the praise psalm. And that the purpose for that praise psalm was instruction. And I pointed that out, especially the second half of that psalm was designed for instruction. So we're to learn something from this. And we're to take a lesson in wisdom in how to uh, think about those who oppose us. How to think about those who are the source of verbal sins attacking us, those who are slandering us, those who are calling us names, those who are hostile to us verbally. Uh, We're to learn from that. So there's two basic divisions in this psalm. The first seven verses are basically very negative. They're the announcement of judgment, where David announces a judgment on his enemy, uh, represented as the wicked man. Um, He's the one who does evil. Verse 1 identifies him. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? So David announces a judgment on him, and that the end result is that God will judge him and remove them from the land of the living. It may not happen today or tomorrow or next week, but God eventually will judge and bring eternal punishment on those who rebel against him. The last two verses, though, stand in contrast to the first seven. The righteous, that is, the writer of the psalm and the one who trusts in God, he's contrasted. He trusts in God, but we'll see that the wicked, the evil one, trusts in his wealth. He trusts in his power. He trusts in his own natural ability, his intellect, his own skills, his ability to manipulate the situation, to elevate his his own power. So... That's the contrast between the wicked who doesn't trust in God and uh, the righteous one who trusts in God. The righteous one will flourish, will prosper, and dwell in the house of God. And, uh, in fact, it's, it's stated in, um, in verse, uh, at the end, or in the middle of verse 5, he will be plucked out of his dwelling place. And the word there for dwelling place is the Hebrew word achel, which means tent. He'll be removed from the tent, and that's a word that is used often to refer to the tabernacle. So the wicked person is kicked out of the tabernacle, and the praise given to God, uh, given to the righteous one, is that he will be like a green olive tree, in verse 8, a green olive tree in the house of God. And so that's, that's part of the contrast. So let's look at it. Let's break it down a little bit and think our way through it. It starts off with a rhetorical question. 
from, uh, from, from David. Why do you boast in evil? O mighty man, the goodness of God endures continuously. And he starts off and he asks this question about boasting in evil. And we see that the word there, translated boast, is a Hebrew word, hallel. Now, you've heard that before. We've talked about the Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118 are the Hallel Psalms. The word means praise. We also use this in the word Hallelujah. That is a Hebrew word meaning uh, the U in there, Hallelujah. That means it's a command to a group of people to praise God. Hallel means to praise. Hallelujah means you praise. Yah means you praise God. So here it's used in a different sense. It also not only has a sense of praising or cheering or boasting in something, positively it's used to boast in the name of God, but also negatively of somebody boasting out of their own arrogance. And so it's used that way here. Why do you boast? And it has this heavy condemnation. You're so arrogant, you're so self-absorbed that you boast in evil. You've lost your sense of right and wrong. You're calling good bad and bad good. Why are you boasting in evil? And then he uses a phrase, uh, gibor in Hebrew. Now, if you ever go to, those of you who've been with me to Israel, if you go to the restrooms, if you're a man, the Hebrew word there on the door is gibberim for the men. And it's a different word for the women. Gibor is just a word for a man. But it was often used in, in, in the Bible to refer to a warrior. And so some think that he's being a little sarcastic here. I don't think it's being sarcastic. I think he's talking about uh, this is a powerful person that he's talking about. And that's what Doeg was. He was on the, the, the council that surrounded Saul. So he's talking to him. He is someone who has expressed uh, later on that he uh, that he trusts in his in his riches uh, rather than trusting in God. In verse seven, he says he trusted in the abundance of his riches. So he is wealthy. He's powerful. He's got position and prestige. And so David is identifying him as someone who is who is boasting. Uh, boasting in evil. And uh, then he says, the goodness of God endures uh, continuously. Now, before we get to that, just want to remind you, boasting in evil, what exactly is evil? As I pointed out here, it's a basic word we find throughout the Old Testament talking about evil. It's used in a lot of different senses. It's used to describe sin. It's used to describe religious idolatry. It's used across the board. So if we look at uh, our diagram here of the sin nature, the sin nature, this is just a schematic to explain how our corruption works, how our corrupt uh, sinful nature focuses. Uh, the top is we call the area of strength. This is, um, this is human good. I'm looking at this. I completely changed this today, and this doesn't have any of my changes in it. Okay, what I changed was human good equals evil. Then down below, personal sins equals evil. Uh, This is an area of weakness where we have overt sins, mental attitude sins, and sins of the tongue. 
At the top, we have human good. These are the good deeds we do out of the flesh. Many people are very religious and very moral, yet the Bible identifies that too as evil. So evil may involve areas of sinfulness, and evil may involve areas of morality. But sins of the tongue, like all sins, are driven by the core orientation of our sin nature, which is arrogance. It's self-absorption. It's our desire to make life work totally apart from God, where we're not going to rely on Him for our security, for our safety, for our happiness, but we're going to rely on, on, on ourselves. We're going to trust in the details of life, the things that are part of God's creator. Or rather than trusting the creator, we're going to trust, uh, trust in the creature. So David asked this rhetorical question to emphasize the issue that that's essentially what's going on here is this powerful person and anybody who is uh, disobedient to God is boasting in evil. They're highlighting evil. And then God, then David reminds them of a principle. Now, I don't, I don't like the way it's translated uh, because you lose the focus point here. It's not the goodness of God endures continuously. The Hebrew word is this word in the uh, blue panel on the right. It's chesed, a word we've studied many times. It means loving kindness. It refers to God's covenant loyalty or his faithfulness. And see, what David is saying here is you boast in evil because you don't think there's going to be accountability. You're denying the reality of God. But the faithfulness of God is always going to be there, and eventually God is going to fulfill the judgment components of his covenant. He is loyal to his covenant, not only works out in the area of God's going to be, uh, God is going to, uh, God is going to be consistent and faithful to the covenant to provide for you and to bless you, but God is also going to be faithful to that part of the covenant where he will judge evil. And so he's being reminded that the covenant loyalty of God endures continually, literally, uh, to all the days. And then he describes his, his actions, uh, his tongue representing what he says, not the literal uh, muscle in the mouth, but uh, what it produces, the speech that it produces. It devises destruction. And it's like a sharp razor working deceitfully. And the, the word, the, the verb there translated devises is the idea it thinks. It, 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 it's taking something into account. It's planning. Uh, so there's purpose. There's planning. And its, and its goal is destruction, which is the second word in the bottom left panel, uh, hava, which has the idea of a yawning gulf. It, it's creating a trap, a pit that you'd fall into, something that is going to totally uh, engulf you and destroy you. And it's like a sharp razor. It cuts and it destroys and it works deceit. So we could translate this, your tongue plots ruin. You're seeking to ruin people through the lies that you spread, through the slander and the gossip that you're spreading, and your tongue works like a sharp razor as you work out your, your plots for deceit. Then we come to verses 3 and 4, where he says this person, the wicked, they really love evil. They may be moral, they may be religious, but they're not biblical. They're not walking with God. They love evil more than good. He's not saying you don't love good. 
He's saying you love evil more than good. You love lying rather than speaking righteousness. It's not that you don't love speaking righteousness, but you love lying more. Uh, You are more concerned about promoting your agenda and destroying those who are in your way than in walking with the Lord. Verse 4, he says, you love all devouring words, uh, you deceitful tongue. Now, the word for love that's used in both verses is the basic Hebrew word for love, ahav. If you've been to Israel, you've seen a brand called ahava. Uh, Dead Sea uh, products, okay? Some of you women are nodding your head. It's a well-known brand. They export all over the world beauty products made from the chemicals at the the Dead Sea. That's that's what ahava comes from that root, ahav, meaning love. Um, And it just means to love, to enjoy, to like. And he's saying you love evil more than good. And there's a parallelism here. Uh, Evil is compared to lying. So here's a situation where evil represents the the sins of the tongue. So it's not just something moral or religious like the evil of idolatry, but it's the evil of lying. You love evil, you love lying. Those are synonymous parallels. And you love evil more than good is parallel uh, to speaking righteousness, speaking the truth. And in fact, uh, in verse 4, you love all devouring words, and the tongue isn't just deceitful, it's treacherous. What, you, what he's accusing Doeg of doing is be, because of your treachery, the priesthood was almost wiped out at Nob. You, you, you slaughtered the priesthood. This was a treacherous act, and it's treachery against God as well as against uh, the priesthood. As a result, you're not going to get away with it. There's going to be punishment. And he announces this in verse 5. He says, God shall likewise destroy you forever. In the same way you destroyed the priest, God will destroy you forever. And it's interesting here. Look at these verbs. God will destroy you. He will take you away. He'll pluck you out and uproot you. We have five key verbs here expressing in a staccato fashion the destruction that will come upon uh, Doeg. The first word, detach, means you'll be broken down. God is going to break you down. He is going to completely destroy you. Uh, The next verb is the word kata down here, which means he'll snatch you away. He's going to break you down. He's going to snatch you away. Then he's going to pluck you out or uproot you. Uh, out of your dwelling place. This is the idea of out of your tent. Uh, so it, it also indicates a removal from the um, uh, removal from from his place of of, of, of the te- temple or the tabernacle, rather. And then he says he's going to uproot you from the land of the living. You will be torn away. Your destiny is death. You will be eternally condemned because of your rejection and hostility to God. But there's a lesson here. Remember I said it's a maskeel, it's for teaching. Verse 6 expresses that the righteous shall see and fear. It is going to teach the righteous to fear the Lord because there is judgment, there's hostility, there is going to be an accounting, if not now, in eternity. And they'll laugh at him. 
Now this, they'll laugh because they're, they're, they're rejoicing because the hostility, the pressure uh, is gone. Uh, there's a joy. Think about at the end of World War II with the threat of war and the hostility of the Nazis in Europe that uh, when the war ended, th- there was a party that lasted for a week. They were joyful because the Nazis were destroyed and the war was over with. And so this happened uh, happened all over. So that's the idea here. The, on the one hand, the righteous will see God's judgment and they will fear because if they're arrogant as well, there'll be a judgment in store for them, divine discipline. Uh, but they'll laugh at him. They'll have joy because, and here's what they say in verse 7, here's the man who did not make God his strength. And the word there is a, a different form of the same word that's translated strengthened here. So there's a pun in the Hebrew going on here to catch our attention. Uh, this, this evil man is described as the one who did not make God his strength. That's an interesting phrase. How many times in the Psalms are we challenged to make God our strength? God is our strong one. We'll look at some verses for that in just a second. He, he didn't make God his strength, but he trusted, instead of trusting in God, he trusts in the abundance of his riches. And he strengthened himself in his wickedness, in his evil. And so the verb there is batach, which means to trust or to have confidence or rely on. What are we relying on in life? Are we trusting in God or trusting in our ability to finagle the circumstances and situation to solve the problems? Are we going to let something, put our focus on something that's a detail of life, that's part of God's creation, or are we going to trust in the Creator? Look at these verses. These are some great verses to memorize. Jeremiah sixteen nineteen. O Lord, my strength and my fortress. See, the wicked man did not make God our strength, but Jeremiah says the Lord is our strength. He is our strength and our fortress, our refuge in the day of affliction. And that idea of refuge is a cognate word right here. He didn't make God his, his, his strength or his refuge. So Jeremiah uses that same language. Psalm 28 does as well. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart gladly rejoices and with my song will praise him. We are to trust in God's power. We're to trust in his strength to solve the problems. And his strength is, uh, is sufficient. He will provide for us. Uh, Psalm 59.9, I will wait for you. O oh, you, his strength, for God is my defense. Now, in Psalm 52, if we look at the, at the end, uh, down in verse, um, uh, verse 9, the very last line, I will wait on your name. Waiting on the Lord is a key element in faith and trust. Waiting on him. Psalm 59, I wait for you because you're my strength. I rely on you. Waiting and relying are very close in meaning right there. Verse 17, to you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. Psalm fifty-nine, seventeen. that word for mercy is hesed. He's the God of loving kindness, faithful loyalty to his covenant. And now as we come to the last two verses, we see the expression of the righteous one. In contrast to the wicked, 
who doesn't trust in the Lord and doesn't make God his strength, who trusts in his own abilities, his own power, his own uh, wealth. The man of God, the woman of God says, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever. I trust in the uh, mercy of God forever and ever. He compares himself in this simile, uh, comparing it's a stated comparison to a green olive tree. Now, there aren't olive trees that grow in the house of God, but he is uh, using this imagery. And olive tree is a very strong image, and olive, olive trees lived a very long life. In fact, there are pictures from the 19th century of olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane that were probably saplings when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane almost uh, 1,800 years before that. Uh, So olive trees live for centuries. Olive trees also produce fruit, food. They produce olives that are good for eating. They produce oil from the olives that are good for lamps and illumination. And if you read the rabbis, they really go off on that, that that's what he's talking about is illuminating people through revelation. I don't think that's the point at all. But it's, it's, it's an olive tree provides... It, uh, for people, it uh, produces fruit, food, oil uh, for lighting, oil for medicine and healing as well. And then he says, uh, in the house of God, so in contrast to the wicked boaster who is kicked out of the tent of God, uh, the righteous is in the house of God and is with the Lord forever and ever. The mercy of God, again, this is chesed, experiencing the faithful, loyal love of God. So he is trusting in God. That's the same word that is used, uh, it was used negatively of the wicked boaster. He did not trust in God, but rather he trusted in the abundance of his riches. In verse 7, same word. And we have the same word chesed used here, uh, talking about and reminding us of the mercy of God. And at the end, he says, I will praise you forever because you have done it. So he's expressing his total reliance upon God to provide for him, unlike the wicked who tries to solve everything himself. And he says, in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name. Waiting is a key word. This is a Hebrew word is kavah, which means to wait for, but it has the idea of hoping for future intervention by God. I will wait for you because it is good. And we're reminded, as I close out, with several verses uh, from the Scripture that tell us to wait on the Lord. Psalm 40, 31, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And then Psalm 27, 14, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. That's that same word for strength. And God is our strength. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And then Psalm 37, 9, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall what? They shall inherit the earth. See, that's connected to hope. Our future inheritance, the rewards that God has for the believer. There are rewards for Old Testament saints, rewards for church-age believers. That's part of our inheritance package. So we live differently from the unbeliever. In order to realize that hope, to trust fully in God, 
and ultimately as he's working in our lives, preparing us for our future inheritance. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that we're not to be like the wicked boaster who trusts in his wealth, trusts in his own abilities, his own intellect, his own power, his own prestige. But we are to be like David. That doesn't mean that we don't exercise our skill, our power, our prestige, but we do it under your authority. We do it in obedience to you. We trust in you. You are our real strength. You are the one who provides for us. You are the one who is our refuge, and we are to trust in you. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with our need to realize that you are sufficient for all our needs and to walk with you closely, that you will uh, strengthen us, encourage us, and enable us to grow to spiritual maturity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.